Need a break from the horrifying reality of real life? Well, do we have a sexy deal for you. Go to adamandeve.com and use our special code HORROR for 50% off almost any item and free shipping. That's H-O-R-R-O-R at checkout for 50% off and free shipping. Order now and get ready to... I love that for them. Hello, everyone. Hi, listeners. Welcome to episode 87 of I'm Horrified. I'm Horrified. It's episode 87. Oh, my God. She just keeps getting older and more withered. (laughs) That's how I feel every morning when I wake up. Less structured. We should really plan something exciting for the 100th, and we should start planning now and not at episode 99 like we usually would. We said we were going to do a Halloween episode and we didn't. Did anyone clock that? It's fine. It's, it's fine. fine. It's fine. It's fine. It's totally fine. I'm not worried about it at all. No one noticed it's fine. <laughs> how are you, Sam? I'm doing pretty well. Um, How are you? I'm doing pretty well. Yeah. We're both just, it's That's cold the maximum now. amount of personal information that we're willing to share with you people. <laughs> you know us. We're closed books. We're closed books. <laughs> On this podcast, you barely know our names. We're basically like, you know... Anderson Cooper was in the 90s like he just was like is he Republican Mm -hmm. is he Democratic is he gay is he straight can't what is it he was like the perfect journalist and those steely blue eyes would tell you nothing there you go but now you know eventually you everything outs we're gonna be broken down yes openly gay thank god backstabbing Kathy Griffin uh cannot wait Counting down. I think this is a perfect kind of correlation <laughs> for <laughs> us will, and our work. I'll give you guys a little peek into my psyche, and it's this. So last week on the podcast, I talked about how there were no women in The Mandalorian, except mm-hmm. for one. Um, the last episode of The Mandalorian that I have since watched, women appear in it. It's thrilling. I'm so glad. It's absolutely thrilling. Again, does not negate the fact that there was one woman in three episodes. Um, but we're glad they're around now. But I'm I'm very happy. I'm hoping that it's this is a turn for the show. And this episode was also directed by a woman. It was directed by Bryce Dallas Howard. I know. I saw that. And I was yeah. like, really? Good for her. So who many people think is Jessica Chastain. But they are two different women. They were both in The Help. Yeah. They're, so they can't be the same. I forget that. <laughs> they cannot be the same woman. Or different wigs. There you go. Were they in the same frame? A vast conspiracy we're unlocking. Any what? But yeah, that that's the most exciting thing that's happened to me is that <laughs> there were two whole women in The Mandalorian. We live unsurprising lives. And also from The Good Place, if you guys are familiar with that show, Pillboy was in The Mandalorian. Which is 100% more Pillboys than they had earlier. We are now a Star Wars content <laughs> podcast. That's all I'm going to talk about. That's actually not true. I'm going to talk about something different this week. Sam, what are you going to talk about? I'm so glad that we just did that segue. Perfect. Um, I'm going to talk about the life of Lady Caroline Lamb. Ooh. Yes. Is she a woman or a lamb? You'll find out. If she is a woman. Spoiler okay. alert. <laughs> um, I want to know. I want to know everything about her. I can show you. Please begin. Well, what are you talking about this week? Oh, I was too excited. <laughs> you cannot wait. Uh, I couldn't wait. I'm not going to tell you until you tell me your thing. Um, I'm going to talk, be talking about teratomas. I don't know what that is. I have no idea. I kind of know. It's I'll a- tell you whatever I do know. Oh, my God. My gu- I'm going to make a guess right now. It's some kind of freckle, but it's bad. It's a bad freckle. I'm going to say no. I'm going to have you guess way more. Before I start. All right. So hold on to those guesses. So just know as I read you this next segment, my, my mind's not in it. I'm just thinking about what a teratoma could be. Mm. All right. Let's talk about Lady Caroline Lamb. Um, this episode feels a little bit like a companion to your episode about Mary Shelley, Al. Really? Because Caroline Lamb, or Caro as she is known by her friends, 
traveled in similar circles. Interesting. And by similar circles, I mean she is one of the numerous women Lord Byron is fucking. Oh. <laughs> that <got> circle. It. <laughs> um, but I think her story and how her story became defined by this affair is a really interesting tale that I just learned recently. I was listening to a podcast called Noble Blood. Uh, which is very good. And it's done by Dana Schwartz, who does the guy in your MFA Twitter. Love that Twitter. She does like this very good, serious podcast about interesting royals in history. So Mm -hmm. listen to that. Listen to this story and hear me retell it in just a slightly different way. Um, Let's just jump into it. Lady Caroline Lamb is born Caroline Ponsonby on November 13th, 1785 in London. And she is the daughter of Frederick Ponsonby, who is Viscount Duncannon. And his gorgeous wife, Henrietta Elizabeth, whose sister is Georgiana, Duchess of Devonshire, who Kira Knightley played in a movie. Mm. So that's how important she is. Oh, in the Duchess. In the Duchess. The very same. She's that Duchess. And Georgiana and Henrietta are both Spencer girls, which makes them and Caro uh, the ancestors of Princess Diana. Oh, yeah. She was a Spencer. Yes. Oh. So there you go. Caroline grows up. She's very beautiful and she's very talented. She has reddish blonde hair, delicate features, and freckles across her cheeks and nose. By age four, she can draw a map of England freehand and has already begun to read. At five, she spoke French and Italian. And at six, she began to study music. At six and a half, Caroline could speak French very tolerably, according to her father, (laughs) and play a tune on the harpsichord. She's also athletic. She's considered a bit of a tomboy by those around her. So she really has, she's just like got it all, it seems, as she's growing she's up. She's the ideal woman who's also a toddler. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so now we're fast forwarding. Caroline's 19 and she falls in love with William Lamb, who is the second son of Lord and Lady Melbourne. Uh, her family is not thrilled with the match, but Caroline is like in love. William is expected to hit, to inherit his father's title at some point. So they're allowed to get married. They're like, all right, we don't love it. Fine. But fine. Fine, 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 fine. And Caroline and William seem happy at first. Uh, After a couple of miscarriages, Caroline gives birth to a son, Augustus, in 1807. Um, And that seems like a really exciting milestone for the couple, but it's clear that Augustus has some severe developmental problems. Uh, Although, obviously, we don't know exactly what they were since this is taking place in the past when we weren't as good at diagnosing things. So most people are just like, he's slow. And I'm like, okay. (laughs) What, what could that mean? That's not so helpful, but thank you. Um, and so uh, at the time, it would have been really, really normal to kind of ship Augustus off and send him to like an institution or like a boarding school or just like not really keep him in the home. But Caroline is not into that. And she is very determined to keep her son with her uh, at all times and raises him her whole life with him. So Better than the Kennedys could do. <laughs> much better than the Kennedys. So there you go. Um, but that's, like, a very surprising thing for the time that she's chosen to do this. That's good, though. Yeah, it's it's very good. And this, as well as disagreements about the church, about society, and about uh, William's family, who referred to Caro as the little beast, lead to a wedge between Caroline and William. Fuck off. The little beast. <laughs> the little beast. Like, fuck you guys. But so they're, they're not as close as they used to be. It was a love match, but they've really fallen out of love. And she has her first love affair with a notorious rake named Sir Godfrey Vassal Webster, which just sounds hot. Does. Godfrey. Oh, Godfrey. I love it. Yes, I love I'm it. I'm into it. Um, she's quickly caught during this affair, uh, and William ultimately takes her back. But it's kind of her first step into, like, impropriety that she does. 
Then in March of 1812, everything changed. <gasps> Caroline received an advanced copy of a book soon to be published by an up-and-coming poet. Oh, I bet I know who. The book was Child Harold's Pilgrimage, and the man was George Gordon Byron. <gasps> so for those of you who aren't familiar with Lord Byron, he's like a gothic sex Jesus. Um, <laughs> Accurate. He's an English poet, peer, and politician. He gets involved with the Greek War for Independence. He's considered like one of the leading figures in the Romantic movement. He's regarded as one of the greatest English poets, and he remains very influential. Uh, and when he died at 36, his friends all read his memoirs, and then they mutually agreed to burn them on the spot so no one could ever read them. So that's <laughs> that's the kind of life that Lord Byron lived. A life where all your friends go, no one can ever fucking read this. <laughs> this is not fit for print. Like, we know he's dead, and this is his last writing, but we need to burn it. We have to get rid of it. Which is what I hope my children do with my memoirs. It's so dirty. We must burn it. <laughs> So Caroline reads Child Harold's Pilgrimage, and she's like, I have to meet this man who wrote this book. And maybe get some of that bomb D I've been hearing about. <laughs> Perhaps. Um, <laughs> we'll think about it. Her friend Samuel Rogers, who gave her the advanced copy and knows Byron, is like, wow, that is not a good idea. Like, you should not. You should not talk to him. You should not meet. Um, and he kind of tries to tell her, like, he's actually not that hot in real life. Like, your image of him is going to be much hotter than what he is really mm -hmm. uh, like. And she says to him, um, if he is ugly as Aesop, I must see him. Why is Aesop ugly? I don't know. But Do we it, know that he's ugly? Even if he's that ugly, she's got to see him. I'm hung up on that now because it's like, <laughs> first of all, that's a person. That's rude. <laughs> that's a rude thing to say. Aesop is like, and is like up in heaven like, ouch, I wrote you those fables. Yeah. Jeez. <laughs> rude. Um, but so... She is determined to meet him. She writes him two letters, one where she's just literally fawning over the book and she doesn't sign that one. But then the second one, she mimics his like prose and style of writing from Child Harold exactly. It's like a perfect like mimic about like what she thinks of him and how wonderful she thought it was. And that one she signs because she knows that a man like Byron, like he's going to be enraptured by people who love him <laughs> and like understand his writing. Mm -hmm. So she's like, this one I'm signing. She does include a nude in that one. <laughs> well, she says she's like, if you want to communicate with me, leave a letter here. And he never does. And she's just kind of like, well, fuck. Okay, fine, fine, fine. I wrote you a really sexy poem, but fine. <laughs> and she lets it go. Cut to a ball at Holland House. Oh. Caroline is dancing the night away, and who does she see standing in a corner like a hot marble statue? None other than Lord Byron himself. Oh my god. And he sees her, too, and he sees that she is gorgeous and rich and well-connected, all things that he himself is not. And he's like, I'm going to make my move. It is great that I never responded to this letter, because now she really wants me. Mm -hmm. So here we go, Byron. Net time to whoop. And he turns around and she left. <laughs> she left the party. Oh no! Um, and she had decided if he hadn't written back to her, then now he has to chase her. So she leaves the party, trying to be very cool and aloof. He thinks he's one step ahead of her. She's three steps ahead. Exactly. But that night, she writes in her diary that Lord Byron is mad, bad, and dangerous to know. <gasps> which is a phrase that follows Byron throughout his entire life. Like, that's the number one quote you hear when you hear about Byron. I'm turned on right now. I know. I want to be in this threesome so bad. <laughs> 
<laughs> this is the history. You, you, you find the steamiest history. I really do. What can I say? I can't help it. They find me. Yeah. <laughs> they seek me out. So soon after Byron and Caroline finally meet, when he arrives unannounced at her house, she's like just coming in from riding. So she's all like sweaty and like not prepared to take visitors. Wind whipped. He rolls up and he presents her with a rose and he says, your ladyship, I am told, likes all that is new and rare for a moment. And she is like, get inside me this instant. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my God. And so they embark on this passionate, scandalous affair in March of 1812. Uh, Byron describes Caroline as the cleverest, most agreeable, absurd, amiable, perplexing, dangerous, fascinating little being that lives now or ought to have lived 2,000 years ago. Agreeable, you know what that means. Mm. (laughs) Don't I ever. He gives her her nickname, Caro, which she then insists everyone calls her. My boyfriend's calling me this. (laughs) You have to call me this. I won't answer unless it's to Caro. Um, It's a good nickname. And Caro and Byron's relationship is very special because they seem to be true intellectual equals. They share a love of dogs and horses and music. Um, Caroline has studied Greek and Latin, and she plays the harp and the harpsichord and writes songs, and Byron sings, and he knows all these languages. And she's, like, painting and doing watercolors. And she's also canvassing for elections because she and Byron both kind of have this contempt for, like, the superficiality of the upper-class wig culture. Mm. So, like, they just, like, sit together at parties and, like, bitch about people. And then they go and they make out. I love that for them. Yeah. They are electric together, but, of course... Electricity is dangerous. That's true. So she cannot be subtle about how she feels for him, even though she is married. Um, And then he does things like forbid her from ever waltzing because he can't waltz because he has a club foot. So he sees her waltzing at a party once. Stop. Stop And he's like, you can never waltz again. And she's like, okay, babe. (laughs) And then like he writes her multiple letters every day. Multiple letters, like full letters every single day. That's a lot. And then she sends him a lock of her pubic hair that is cut so close to the skin it has blood on it. So they have just Wait, stop, stop. zero <laughs> stop. Zero chill. This is like Angelina Jolie and Billy Bob Thornton when it's they're a like lot wearing vials like of blood. It's a and like, lot like It's a that. lot like it seems a lot like if that. If she could have gotten Byron tattooed on her arm, I think she would have. Yeah. Under a dragon. Mm-hmm. 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 That's a perfect analogy, yep. Al. Thank yep. you. Wow. So they just, they can't chill out. <laughs> <laughs> Everyone's just like, Jesus Christ. <laughs> but there are a couple problems. Number one, Byron does not have a very long attention span. And number two, Kara was married. <laughs> She's right. still married. I totally forgot about that. To William Lamb. Yeah. So their relationship really can't progress and he is starting to get bored. But he's also very, very vain. So he just wants, like, her to say to him that she loves him more than she loves her husband. Gatsby. And she's like, no, I won't say that. Even though it is so clear to everyone, including her and him, that she does. She's just like, I won't say the words. And he's like, I don't even want to be with you. But, like, I'm going to keep being with you because I need you to say that sentence. Maybe that's why she didn't. Because she was, like, trying to keep... She's so... I think she's smarter than him. Yeah. So then finally kind of, like, trying to win... Byron is like, well, maybe we should run off together. And Caro is... solution to everything. And Caro is like, yes, absolutely. I hate this hypocritical culture. I love you. Let's run away together. That's a great idea, George. And he's like, oh, girl, like, you were serious. (laughs) (laughs) I wasn't trying to be that serious about it. Like, she kind of calls him on it by accident. (laughs) 
He's like, I just said that, like, right before I came. So, like, you can't trust that. He literally, I think that might have happened. Like, he did Historians not. Historians would indicate. Yeah. Lord Byron He's is like, like, I gotta bounce. I got to bounce. And he leaves London for Newcastle and stops answering Carol's letters. Is this before or after, um... The whole thing with Mary Shelley's sister. I think before. Okay. So but. he's already lived a fucking life. <laughs> yeah, before he even impregnates Mary Shelley's mm-hmm. sister. Um, and so he stops answering Carol's letters. Carol keeps writing like, hi, hello, we were going to run away together and get married. Like, and then you ghosted me. Like, texting doesn't even exist yet. And yet here I am ghosted. Like, what, what happened? Where are you? What's going on? What's wrong? I met at our usual sex spot with my suitcase. <laughs> yeah. Where are you? And so um, she's just getting more and more frantic in these letters. Byron finally returns. And there's this rumor that like, oh, Lord Byron is back in town. And Carol's like, okay, then I have to do something. So she dresses as a page boy and goes out (laughs) in the middle of the day. So this is like, if she gets caught, this is bad news. She sneaks into Byron's house because she heard a rumor he's back in London. He is. She goes up to his library and she's like, hi, what the fuck? Like, where have you been? I love you. Like, what's going on? In her page boy way. In her page boy outfit. Byron's like, get out of my house. And Caro ends up pulling a letter opener and threatens herself with it. And Byron manages to calm her down, but it is then clear to him that he is in a little bit over his head. Well, he fucked up. He really did. He absolutely did. It's his It's his bad. But I guess he did not think that Caro yeah. would go to those lengths to see him. She just He just thought she would let it fizzle out. Which is what he was ready to do. Sounds like a man. Sounds just like a man. And sounds absolutely like Lord Byron. Yeah. Not all men, but definitely Lord Byron. And Percy Shelley's like, (laughs) bitches be crazy. (laughs) But what are you going to do? Pretty much. Meanwhile, Caro's family is seeing this change in her behavior. And they're kind of freaked out about it. Like, they weren't thrilled with the affair to begin with. But it is consuming Caro's every moment. So they force her to leave London and move to Ireland. Um, And she is miserable and keeps writing to him. And now that she's kind of left, he's like, okay, well, now that, like, the affair is over because she doesn't live here anymore, like, I can keep writing to her because she's going to keep giving me these compliments. So I'll just do that. And he's totally leading her on for, like, months. I hate this. He's still writing to her. And is like, I'm here whenever you need me, like, XOXO, Byron. Uh, And she's like, of course you are because we're in love and we're still together. And he's like... Yeah, I just mean, like, I'm in London and you're in Ireland, but, like, here if you need me, XOXO. And she's like, yes, because we're getting married. Yeah, like, we should totally hang out soon. Oh, my God, miss me so much. <laughs> yeah, like, Love literally. Lots. Literally, those are Byron's fucking letters And it's her. also, like, she has to pick up on that as well. Yeah, but she can't. Ghost me once. <laughs> right? Right. <laughs> but unfortunately, like, she just can't. And she is growing, like, more extreme in her behavior. She stops eating. She devotes her whole life to writing to him. And Byron has moved on. He has a new lover named Lady Oxford in London. And he just, like, doesn't give a He's about like, her. I'm treating a different woman terribly now. Yeah, he really... And boy, is he. Um, and so he decides he has to break it off, to which it's like, you're a little late, buddy, but okay. And he writes Carol one last letter. And he is mean in this one. Ah, uh, And he mean? says, correct your vanity, which is ridiculous. Exert your absurd caprices on others and leave me in peace. And then as an extra fuck you, he seals it with Lady Oxford's waxed seal. Basically saying, like, I was just fucking my new girlfriend right before I wrote you this letter. And I was still in her house. So I just used her seal. I know. Kill him. 
that hurt. I, I'm hurting yes. for her. Yes, and she is understandably devastated and moreover furious. Um, she suffers from what we would now call a nervous breakdown, but back then they called it erotomania. I still Which call is it that. dementia <laughs> caused by obsession for a man. Wow. Yeah, I mean, well, <laughs> it happens. I mean, we've all had girlfriends who we've been like, girl, you have erotomania right now. And they're like, I know. <laughs> but so she ends up gathering everything Byron has ever given her, and she burns it in a bonfire on Christmas Eve. I love that for um, her. Well, local children all dressed in white, who she specifically brought, I guess, for having <laughs> Dramatic effect. Um, I love this energy. They recite a poem she wrote comparing Byron to Guy Fox as she burns all of the mementos of their affair. I love that she staged like a community play <laughs> to really deal with did. her breakup. And she was like, make sure you wear white. I'll be wearing white as well. we'll Check go in with out. the stage manager at four. <laughs> yeah. And it's we're going on at seven. Yeah, that's so. how mad she was. She put on a whole play. That's how angry she I was. I love that. I love that for her. So all in all, their relationship from their first meeting to Caroline's bonfire is less than a year. Yikes. (laughs) But society and Caroline cannot let it go. So she returns to England in 1813 and starts running into him and he's just ignoring her. And she's like, how can you be ignoring me right now when all the stuff we've been through over the past year? After all the weird sexual things (laughs) that we obviously did together. Yes. She's watching him flirt with all these other women. He's going to marry her cousin, probably, which is just, like, a huge fuck you. Um, And Carol becomes obsessed with getting her revenge on Byron. So she first writes a letter to Lady Oxford threatening her. Um, Lady Oxford's like, whatever. And then she'll go to parties, I guess, and just stand across the room from Byron and, like, stare at him. Just, like, stare at him the whole night. Right. And he's like, this is weird. And she's staring at him still. Babe, the best revenge is living well. <laughs> she doesn't get that yet. She doesn't get that yet. Um, And so she's doing that. She makes up buttons for her staff um, and they all wear it. And it says, no Crede Byron, which means have no faith in Byron. And it's a play on his family's words, which are Crede Byron or have faith in Byron. So she's having all of her staff be like, don't. I will make you wear those. All my friends wear those if Chris and I ever break up. Oh, I'll, I'll make them. You can make them. <laughs> I will create them. Um, I'll go to Kinko's right now to just have them so they're ready. <laughs> yeah. And then she sneaks into his house and she writes on one of his books, Remember Me. <gasps> and the book. All right. This is, we're getting into her bad territory. No, absolutely. Like it was, it was, he did, he did a lot of fucked up shit, but she was letting herself, you know what I mean? Like, it's not about blame. It's just no. about like, you have to value yourself in that absolutely. situation. Absolutely true. So she, so she writes Remember Me, but what she writes it on is a book by William Beckford, and William Beckford is famously bisexual. So this writing on it is her threatening Byron because she knows that he is bisexual. So she oh. made a very calculated move by writing Remember Me on that book specifically. And Byron writes an unpublished poem in response. Oh, oh boy. Um, would you like to read it? I, I would like you to read it. I'll read it. All right, I'm channeling the spirit of Byron right now. (laughs) Get horny and angry. (laughs) I'm already there. And gayer. (laughs) Do it all. I'll try. I'll try. All right. Um, Remember thee, remember thee, till Leith quench life's burning stream. Remorse and shame shall cling to thee and haunt thee like a feverish dream. Remember thee, I doubt it not. Thy husband too shall think of thee. By neither shall thou be forgot. 
thou false to him, thou fiend to me. <gasps> and that one's so fire, he doesn't even publish it. <laughs> he just keeps that. That's crazy. So, um, another fun thing. This is back in the fun category. Caro finds out that Byron wants to send this portrait of himself to Lady Oxford. And she is very good at mimicking the way that he writes. So she writes a fake letter that says like, oh, can you please give Caroline the portrait? Thank you. And goes to his man and is like, this is from Byron. And the guy's like, yes, of course this is from Byron. I recognize it. And gives her the portrait. And Byron is mad about losing the portrait, but he is more mad that she is so smart and so good at mimicking his writing style. Also, you're telling me that she didn't draw like a funny mustache <laughs> on it and then send it to Lady Oxford? No, she ends up giving it back. But she was just, it was like just trying to be a fuck you of like, what you do isn't so special. I mean, no shame in her game. Yes. Like, she's amazing at what she does. <laughs> Finally, they meet again at a ball. And Carol makes a comment to him saying something about how now she can waltz because they aren't together anymore. I don't have to deal with your stupid club foot anymore. Yeah. And Byron says, well, of course, you do it so well and with everybody. Slut. Yeah. And so Caroline is so furious, she is holding a glass. She crushes it in her hands and then again moves to injure herself. It is in all the papers the next day. It is a huge scandal because it happened in the middle of the dance floor at a ball. And, like, Caroline's family is now threatening to take her away again or worse, have her institutionalized because of just how furious this man makes her. So this last incident happened in July of 1813. And it seems like that is maybe the last time Caro and Byron are ever face to face. But they never quite get away from each other. So, as I mentioned, Caro's cousin, Anne Isabella Milbank, also known as Annabella, had married Byron in 1815. He really needed to marry Rich. And she was like, okay. I'm rich. I guess I'm rich. <laughs> Their marriage had proven to be a failure practically from the moment it happened. Wow, that's a shock. Byron had spent the wedding night in bed with his half-sister, Augusta Lee. Jesus With Christ. whom he was rumored to be having an affair while Annabella slept on the couch. Uh, also, uh, Augusta Lee did have a kid. So everyone was like, is that your your brother's? And she was like, no. Probably. But probably it, it was. Um, and so in 1816, Annabella and her now, like, one-year-old child, Ada, leave Bry Byron. And no one is there for her more than Caro. Caro offers to share everything she knows about Byron's relationship with Lady Oxford, hoping it will hasten the divorce. She's, like, a real source of comfort for Annabella as all well, this is like, happening. She's like, I get it. Yeah. But interestingly, love and hate are not so far away from each other. Caro is also writing to Byron around these times and just saying, like, hey... I get that this sucks. Like, it's probably for the best. I'm really sorry about this. Like, I, I wish the best for you, but like... Don't do this. Don't text your ex-boyfriends these things. I know, I know. And Byron never answers her. I think he... People think he knew that, like, she was helping with kind of the divorce. But, like, to me, it seems like she was genuinely just trying to be like, hey, this is for the best. Like, maybe let's just let this yeah, divorce Yeah, but she happen. shouldn't be contacting him. Maybe she She's got to stop it. I know. She's got to cut it out. But Caro knows she has one last card to play, to paint Byron in the public eye as the man she knows him to be. And so in the summer of 1816, just after Byron departed England forever, Caroline publishes her novel, Glenarvan, which is loosely based on her affair with Byron. And it's set in Ireland, and as the background is like this like repression of the Irish uprising, and it's published anonymously, but everyone knows Lady Caroline is the one who wrote it. And there's a character that is clearly Byron, and there's a character that is clearly her, and there are characters that are clearly, like, other people in Whig society. Mm. 
And she just, like, puts it all out. She's like, I'll fuck up my name. I'll fuck up your name. I'll fuck up his name. Like, I don't care. Here's I'm gonna read out. her. I'm gonna read him. Yes. <laughs> she reads She reads herself. She reads them all. The library <laughs> is open. <laughs> um, and so it's really notable, this book, for featuring the first version of a Byronic hero outside of Byron's own work. <laughs> Uh, ironically enough honestly as well for as for its detailed scrutiny of the romantic period and more specifically the ton uh and lady caroline is like doing caricatures of a lot of people and one of them the countess of jersey ends up canceling lady caroline's vouchers and almacs in retribution (gasps) because it's very clear that one of the characters in the book is the countess the countess of jersey Mm -hmm. And she really is, like, Lady Caroline is blackballed from all of fashionable society after this book comes out. They're all like, you you open the library so you can stay there and not come. <laughs> We're closing the doors behind you. Yeah. And her reputation never fully recovers, but the book is a hit. It sells out multiple printings. And Caroline keeps writing. So she publishes two satires of Byron's Don Juan. Oh my god. <laughs> one is called A New Canto and one is called Gordon A Tale. She writes two more novels. Um, and the third was called Dong Wan. I wish. Um, and she writes song lyrics that are set to music and sold. Like, she becomes, like, a, a, a pretty well-known writer, actually. She should have been focusing all that energy into her yes. creative life rather than this awful man. Absolutely. And But it does at this point. Carolyn's life continues on. She is, of course, crushed to hear about Lord Byron's death in 1824. But she just kind of keeps working on her other projects. She ends up passing away in 1827 of edema complicated by her abuse of alcohol and laudanum. So perhaps it was not a long or happy life, but it was certainly one that involved more than only Lord Byron. True. Um, And so that's kind of what I leave Caroline's story thinking about is like this woman's whole legacy is defined by her relationship that was like less than two years of her life in reality. Mm -hmm. And she went on to write like pretty well regarded and interesting books And she went on to do other things. And it's like a bummer that this is the only way we think of her. And specifically, we think of her as kind of a villain in Byron's story. So a lot of like his biographers talk about how like, she should have been slapped or like she, oh, and that's the other thing is that her husband after she dies goes on to like become one of the prime ministers of England. So she also appears as like a footnote as in a lot of his books, Mm. as like his crazy first wife. Right. And it's, like, why do, like, these biographers feel this need to, like, punish this woman and call her so stupid? Yeah, they were punishing each other. Yeah. Like, they were clawing at each other. Yeah. So it's just, like, very interesting. And she herself wrote, um, quote, Everybody wishes to run down and suppress the vital spark of genius I have. And in truth, it is but small. I am not vain, believe me, nor selfish, nor in love with my authorship. But I am independent as far as might and a bit of dust can be. Wow. So that's she, really profound. Yeah. So she was just saying, like, what is it? I'm just writing these books. Yeah. I'm writing to write now. And I'm good at what I do. Yeah. So I'd say let's let both this scandalous, admittedly very interesting affair and Caroline's later writing and work, let those both be her legacy um, from now on and not just that time that she cut her pubic hair off and sent it to him. Which I did glaze over, <laughs> but it was by design. I didn't want to think about it for that long. Ow, yeah. Yeah. Thinking about it. But yeah, I think it's true. Like when someone is uppity in history yeah. and it's a woman, she's like a difficult whore that yeah. you need to 
shove firmly to the side, but when men interfere and make yeah. waves, it's history building. Yeah. So, fuck off. Absolutely. It's like Byron is not defined by his relationship with... And he was, by all accounts, horrible. <laughs> yeah. So, what's your point? Exactly. <laughs> all right. That was really interesting. Yeah, but that's Lady Caroline Lamb. Um, listen to Noble Blood if you like stories like this, because it was really good. We but... stand a wild one. We do. We do. She does. She was right on the verge on some of those. You could tell she was... She needed to focus on herself. She made plenty of bad decisions, but so did he. And they were making bad decisions together. Absolutely, they were. Um, So that's that. So yes, but that's Lady Caroline. All right, I still have no guesses about what your thing is. You don't have any other guesses? So you said it was a freckle that will kill you? That's my best guess. No, give me other ones. What else do you think? Say the word it is again. Teratoma. Uh, It's colorblindness. Teratoma. It's not that scary. <laughs> um, it's, um, a, it's, oh, I'm thinking about it wrong, and it's a woman, and her name is Tara Toma, and she also has a horrifying life that we're about to learn about. Okay. Um, Teratoma. It's, <laughs> um, it's a place in the earth, the Terra, the ground. Uh, oh, interesting. There we go, right? So that's not true, but. Well, <laughs> all right. Well, those are all my guesses. What is it? You're keeping me in suspense. All right. Well, I know you want to know what it is. But I'm not going to start this segment with a definition. No! I'm going to start this segment with an anecdote. Ooh. The story. You ready for a story? I'm ready. In the fall of 2015, long ago. (laughs) Many years. um, A woman named Yamini Karanam, a PhD student, was studying computer science in Indiana after moving there from India. Described by everyone she knew as brilliant, evidenced by the fact that she was a fucking PhD student, which is not easy. Yamini started noticing that she was forgetting things. Not only that, but she was having trouble reading and even forming sentences correctly in conversation. Huh. She started sleeping more, and soon enough, she started experiencing headaches. Really bad headaches, and they would just get worse and worse. This seems bad. So after going to doctors, they discovered what they thought was a small cyst on Mm -hmm. her brain. But no one was really taking her seriously even though these headaches were getting worse and she started like slipping and falling at her job and just things were getting, things were progressing basically. Um, So eventually her friends began a fundraiser for her medical fees as she didn't have adequate insurance to investigate properly what was going on with her body. Mm -hmm. Um, So eventually doctors recognized this growth as a tumor, but no one is willing to operate on her due to the tumor's position on her brain. They say that it would be life-threatening to try to, operate on this tumor but by this point she's lost the ability to walk the ability to eat effectively effectively and talk effectively you know her life is being ruined and she's hurtling towards what she assumes is death like she doesn't know what's happening and she's just getting worse and worse so eventually um by what she described herself as a miracle a doctor in los angeles accepted the challenge of surgically removing this tumor um, and at this point, I can happily report that she is alive. <gasps> she lived through that. This is thrilling. Um, and the surgery was a success, so that pressure's off. However, what the doctor discovered in her brain was shocking. Ooh. The tumor, which had been pressing on her brain and threatening her life, was made of bone, hair, and teeth. Yikes. The tumor was a Frankenstein of cells growing together, trying to form life within Yamini's skull. When Yamini awoke, she discovered that the tumor had in fact been, to quote her own words, her evil twin sister that had been torturing her for 26 years. What? Bananas. 
She's like a monster ball. Oh my god. Of body parts. So the teratome. <laughs> so that's what it is. That's what it is. So it's a great it's also a great beginning to a horror movie. Yeah, Jesus. <laughs> like it's alive. Um but in fact this medical phenomenon called a teratoma It's a tumor made up of different types of tissue, such as hair, muscle, teeth, cartilage, or bone, um, and it can form inside the human body, usually during gestation. So it isn't usually malignant. It's usually benign, meaning it's it's usually not dangerous in itself. It's not cancerous. It's Uh usually not life-threatening. It usually isn't. Um, It would just be very unlikely. (laughs) It would be like cells that got lost and were also cancerous. but rather just cells that grow body tissue. So this leaves me with two questions, naturally. Why does this happen? Mm -hmm. And is it actually an evil twin that she describes? (laughs) I need to know. The the world needs to know. We all need to know. So we're going to turn to our old friend, Live Science. They they always have great articles for me for some medical info. Thanks, Live Science. So they say, a teratoma is a type of tumor that can contain all three of the major cell types. They don't tell me what those cell types are. But wait, can you say... There's three of them. Can you say a teratoma is a type of tumor like eight more times? Teratoma (laughs) is a type of tumor. Um, And again, I don't feel bad making fun of it because it's usually benign. Yeah. (laughs) So whatever. You're fine. Um, So... Type of tumor that contains all three of the major cell types that are found in the early stages of the human embryo. Um, Although these tumors can originate during embryonic development, they are not embryos themselves, and they are not a person's twin, so that answers that. They arise from germ cells, which are the cells that go on to later develop into a person's gametes, such as sperm and eggs. Mm -hmm. At the early states, germ cells have the ability to turn into any cell in the body. So these cells usually create gonads. Uh Uh-huh bits and pieces, but in their early stages before they're fully formed, they can create any part of the body. Okay. It's very important to remember because <laughs> they are, in fact, in their early stages. So typically, during the development of a human embryo, germ cells migrate to the gonads, and teratomas are what can result if these germ cells end up in the wrong place. Okay. The most common places for teratomas to end up are the ovaries, testes, and the tailbone. So that region, Mm -hmm. um, which makes sense because they're headed there anyways. Yes. (laughs) Um, So they're like, almost? Nope. So from what I understand, these rare tumors occur when pieces of this germ cell break away from where they're supposed to be and end up somewhere they're not so supposed to be. Mm -hmm. And germ cells, like we learned in early stages, carry all of the potential to make a person. Mm -hmm. Like any part you can imagine. Right? Um, And then because they have all of this material and information about how to make a human body, it tries to make a human body wherever it ends up. It's like, I'll do my best. To varying degrees of success. Oh, man. Oh. So while this clump of cells is trying to make a human, as stated in the quote before, it's not a separate human. Uh Uh-huh. Twins are created either by this fun, if you don't know how twins are made, so it's either two individual zygotes, mm-hmm. and they each create an embryo, and then those are both born at the same time, <laughs> in the same whatever it's called, mm-hmm. and it's two embryos, and that's how you get fraternal twins. Or to get identical twins, a zygote creates an embryo, and then the embryo splits. Uh-huh. So that's why they're identical, and they have the same genetic material. Because mm-hmm. um, the embryo creates a person, and if you cut it in half, you get two of the same people, but then they... They're different. They, <laughs> learn, we've got they some, learn different things. We've got some epigenetics in there. But they're, but they're in physically there. not different. Yes. So, um, 
it was very confusing to doctors, the difference between them for a while, because, like, I think you would probably look at it and be like, oh, it's a parasitic twin or something like that, or it's a twin that got lost or something like that. But it would usually be inside of the other person. Mm -hmm. And, um, yeah, there are two distinct causes. So it's it's easy to tell because it would either have, you know, its own embryo or not. So this is terrifying to me for a bunch of reasons. I very rarely think about how complicated the human body is, but it's, like, so fucking complicated. Yeah. Like, do you ever think about that? Like, how am I able to, like, walk and, like, talk? Yeah. Like, make a sandwich? I like, know. how How do we do that? Like, I just don't understand. Like, one... And, th- and then the thing about it, like, when I hear about things like this, it's, like, one teensy tiny thing could go wrong for a second. Mm-hmm. Like, 15 minutes after you're conceived. And then it just alters everything about the course of your life forever. Like, it's just crazy. And I can't deal with it. And it's, like, fascinating. And it's, like, amazing and awe-inspiring. But I think some of the most amazing and awe-inspiring things are also the most upsetting and terrifying. Sea space. Sea space. Space is the same way. Yeah. Um, Yeah, I have a lot of problems dealing with space. You know this. I know you do. I know you do. And it's weird because, like, your whole body has to exist just to give like your brain a goo vessel Mm -hmm. you know what i mean like like your brain is the one processing and doing everything but your body still has to be there to help you do the things yep yep it's fucked up and then you think about you know one of our earlier episodes about cartesian skepticism where our bodies might not even be real touch all of the senses could be a perceived construct yeah we could be created by our brains We could be in the Matrix right now. I always expect when I'm talking about Cartesian skepticism for all, like, the walls to, like, disintegrate Matrix style. Yes. Um, Or God comes down and he's like, you figured it out. Great job. The thing about the Matrix, though, that makes me comforted is that at least Keanu Reeves is real. Yeah. Do you know? Doesn't that that seem nice? I'm so happy for him. He seems like he has a really nice girlfriend right now. Me too. What was I talking about? It's not important. Let's keep talking about Keanu. Frankenstein balls. Oh, no. Um, (laughs) All right. Oh, God. Don't call them that. Let's go back to what it is. It's this phenomenon is rare, but it's not as rare as you'd think. I would think like this never happens. Um, it's most frequent in the tailbone, which is where it usually occurs. One out of every thirty thousand newborns has some kind of form of this, and it accounts for twenty out of every a hundred abnormal growth growths found in the ovaries. Interesting. Um, usually, and, and you know, sometimes it's small and hard to even notice that it is an actual teratoma. Um, you could look at it and just be like, that's a cyst, maybe. Yeah. <laughs> um, you might not see, like, teeth poking out. Yeah, Jesus fuck. But the more developed the tumor is, often the more pronounced the signs of, shall we say, life are. Oh. Um, and here is a truly upsetting example from an article that I found in The Guardian. In 2003, Japanese doctors operating on a 25-year-old virgin identified the most fully formed ovarian teratoma yet found. A small, doll-like body, mostly complete. Like any normal fetus, the body was covered with fine, downy hair, but the homunculus was unmistakably deformed. It had spina bifida, and its brain failed to divide into two normal hemispheres. In the center of its forehead was a single, soft, spherical, fluid-filled eye cloaked by thick, long eyelashes. Oh my god! This strange, quote-unquote, fetus, because it's not a fetus had one ear, all its limbs, a brain, a spinal nerve, intestines, bones, and blood vessels, even a jaw already ruptured by several teeth emerging from beneath the skin. Your mouth is wide open. <laughs> Sam's, Sam's shook right now. 
I can't even make jokes right now. That's so spooky. Yeah. That's the spookiest thing I've ever heard. So now let's get spookier. No. Okay. You gotta go with me. You don't, okay. have, a, you don't okay. have a choice. Okay, just Ev- do it. Everyone else has the choice to pause Rip it. off the band-aid, Allie. <laughs> so we, first of all, let's start here. We have no way of knowing if one of these little balls of teeth and hair and body parts is growing somewhere in our bodies or how developed it might get. It's probably not. But that's unusual, right? Yeah, it's probably not. Here, I think, is the most troubling concept. Okay. It is possible that the story from 2003 was actually a parasitic twin and that they misnamed it as a teratoma. However, there were many doctors present and this was written about in medical journals. So in all likelihood, it was an incredible set of circumstances Uh to create this situation. So we're going to assume that that was a teratoma, which we know to be carriers of life-giving cells, but not as a distinct identity from the embryo. Like we said, we know it isn't a twin. So my question is, what if by some crazy circumstance, some even crazier circumstance than this circumstance, that teratoma was perfectly formed? What if it had lived? What if it grew large enough to sustain life outside of this body. It's not a twin. It's cells already made the person it was destined to create. What would that being be? (laughs) Sam's crying. (laughs) Obviously, I've been thinking about this since you initially told me like one minute ago. Let's wrap. If it's not a twin. Is it a clone? And it's not that person. Is it a clone? I don't, I don't have an answer. Because it's then, it's, because it, it's the same cell makeup. You know what I mean? It's the same DNA structure. No, but a twin is the same DNA structure. Yeah. But my question is. But it's not a child because. Does it get its own soul? <laughs> Do they share a soul? Is it like, get out? No, that's the different, that's us. the other Jordan Peele movie. Is it like us where there's only one soul and they have to fight for it? So at this time, I would like to offer a personal you're welcome to Stephen King, who I assume is listening to this podcast, as this will be the topic of his next novel. I... (laughs) Sam's doing, like, prayer hands down, (laughs) like, trying to figure it out. Um, I don't have an answer for you. Would you have to raise it like your child, but you know it's you? Could you stop it from making all the mistakes that you made in your life, and then it becomes the most idealized version of you, the better version of you, the superior you? Because it has your life experience to not do. I'd like to erase this episode. I would like... (laughs) I would like not only... I would like to have never heard this. I would like to still believe a teratoma is a freckle. And I would like us to not release this to the public. I don't think we need to burden them with this. I do feel like it is a Pandora's box. (laughs) um, But I would like us to open it together. I'm going to be texting you about this for the next four days. You're going to feel like a weird, like wiggle in your side and be like (gasps) i don't have one it's a tiny fully ford sam ready to spring forward and (laughs) eat my soul i do have those weird cysts on my head but they're just cysts you do have those weird cysts on your head but i've gotten them removed before and they were just cysts well there's a tooth in the next one (laughs) what if there's a tooth in the next one the teeth is the worst part yeah that's the worst hair is like one thing but teeth Teeth. is the worst they could chomp on you yeah muscle who cares there's a tooth in there somewhere that it's not supposed to be Anyways, I would really, really love nothing more for than for you to tell me what you think would happen. And I would love nothing more. If a teratoma more. was able to sustain life 
So you can email us at imhorrifiedpodcast at gmail.com. Yep. And what I would like for you all to do is find one of those men in black guys mm-hmm. and they have the pen that erases your memory. <laughs> and I would like one of them to come at me and erase this because I will never rest. Yeah. We need some eternal sunshine of the spotless mind shit, but for each other. Um, Sam, I'm so sorry. So what if it was like, I mean, for all intents and purposes, it would be your twin. Even though it's not technically your twin. I don't think it's a medical question. A, it would never happen. B, if it were to happen, I do think it would be like a twin scenario. I'm saying twins are destined to be individual people. And this wasn't. And this wasn't. This was a mistake. God made a mistake. Or somebody else made a mistake. (laughs) (laughs) Sam just slapped her hand on the table. Also, I don't believe that life begins at conception. So, um, so there you go. So that's Anyways. Another, that's another thing to throw See you in. next week. Anyway. Um, Allie, no thank you for that. Yeah. Think about that. Fuck me For up. a while. And then you email us. Um, and just tell us why. No, don't email us. Don't you put that evil on me, Ricky Bobby. Tell us how God would punish us in that way. <laughs> um, and until next week, we hope you stay horrified. Stay horrified. Stay horrified.